Well, today I want to look into the Word of God, and we're going to look at what I would argue might just be the toughest passage of Scripture in all of the Bible. Now, that's a bold statement, but I'm going to try to uh, to support it. And before we get into our main text for today, which you should know is coming from Matthew 18, we've been in a study of Matthew. 18. I want to look at a verse of scripture that comes from the Torah. Uh, I love the Torah, what we as Christians have historically referred to as our Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. And the reason why I love the Torah is because Jesus loved the Torah. Jesus saw the Torah as the foundation for all of his teachings, but he also saw himself as the Messiah, the fulfillment of all the Torah, the embodiment of it. As a matter of fact, John declares him to be the word in flesh. He was the God man who came to rescue us from our sins. He embodies the word of God for us so that we can get a visual example of what's commanded for us in scripture. Uh, maybe no other place is this seen more clearly, more evidently, more boldly than what it's seen in Micah chapter 6. Micah chapter 6, verse number 8. Now, I'm going to read Micah chapter 6 to you. You may have a hard time finding it, depending on how well you know your Old Testament, but it's one of those small little books at the back of the Old Testament called the uh, Minor Prophets. Not minor, because they uh, said uh, something that was less important, just minor because they said it in fewer words. They uh, have smaller books compared to some of the other books of the Bible. But look at what it says here in Micah chapter 6, verse number 8. It says here, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. This verse has been quoted over and over again as a summary of all that the Torah teaches concerning the moral commands and expectations of God concerning you and I, that we would do justice, that we would love kindness, or that word kindness in many translations is translated as mercy. It is that. It is the loving kindness or compassion of God expressed through his mercy and his forgiveness and that we would do all of this as we walked humbly with our God. Now, I said earlier that I think this might be the toughest passage of Scripture in all of the Bible, and I think it's true because we typically seem uh, tend to resonate with one of these virtues or the other. Very rarely do you find those who resonate with both. That typically we are drawn to either justice and holding people accountable for sin. In other words, taking sin seriously. Or we are drawn to mercy, the passionate pursuit of people, and showing forgiveness. But very rarely do you find those things in balance. Very rarely do you find a person or a community that holds both accountability and reconciliation tightly together. 
But that is what he's called us to do. And it seems so foreign to the culture that we currently find ourselves in. A culture that is so deeply committed to justice, at least on the surface. I won't argue that our culture broadly gets the justice of God. But I will say that this whole sense of holding bad actors accountable certainly has become the ethos of our day. And what does that lead to? Well, you know what that leads to. That leads to being canceled. This is what our culture typically does, accountability without redemption. And then there are those who are committed to redemption without accountability. Well, let's not hold people accountable. After all, isn't God a God of grace is the argument that uh, is presented so often. But yet Jesus, the Messiah who comes to rescue us from our sins, embodies both justice, taking sin seriously, and mercy, the passionate pursuit of people with the goal of forgiveness and reconciliation. And it's seen most clearly on the cross of Christ as he hangs there, paying the ultimate price, not for his sins, but for mine and for yours while at the same time praying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Forgiveness, accountability, all of it comes together at the cross. Repentance and reconciliation all come together at the cross. Justice and mercy all come together at the cross. That's the only thing that can heal a family. That's the only thing that can heal a country that's in conflict. That's the only thing that can heal a church that's in conflict. Speaking of the church, he bursts from the cross a community, a new community, which is meant to be countercultural. It's called the church, you and I, and we're supposed to embody these virtues, first spoken of in Micah, then demonstrated by Jesus the Messiah on the cross. Now through the power of the Spirit, we, you and I, are supposed to embody repentance and reconciliation. And when we do, we draw many men and women to the faith. But when we don't, we repel many men and women from the faith. It reminds me of a breakfast that I had years ago with a doctor who had been a former atheist for many, many years and then had become a Christian. And he was willing to uh, speak with me and I was curious about what was it? What was it? So I asked him the question, what was it for all those years that caused you to be an atheist? And to my surprise, his answer was Christians. Watching the hypocrisy, the judgmentalism, watching all of the things that seem to be flawed about them is what caused me to say, I don't want any parts of it to be an atheist. Then I asked him the counter question, the expected question. So what was it then that caused you to change your mind, to become a believer, a follower of Christ? His answer to my surprise was Christians. When I saw them living in community, out, living out their faith seriously, upholding these virtues that we're talking about today, of taking sin and accountability seriously, but also taking grace and mercy and reconciliation seriously, I knew I needed that, and I could only find that in Christ. So let's look at how Jesus tells us this should play out in the community of believers. Let's go to Matthew's gospel, chapter 18. 
Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18, and we've been building as Jesus has been patiently teaching throughout Matthew, chapter 18, his uh, followers, his disciples, on how we as the community of believers, how they were expected to treat one another, they being the uh, first generation of Christ followers that would set the model for us, the pattern for us in generations to come that would follow their teachings and their example on how we are supposed to treat one another in community. And what we've seen is that Jesus has called them to be a spiritual family, not just a gathering, not just a social movement, uh, but, a, but a spiritual family. And in this spiritual family, which is comprised of brothers and sisters in Christ, Christ being the head of this family, in this spiritual family, we're supposed to model both repentance and recon reconciliation. As a matter of fact, the big idea of this text is that Christian relationships pursue repentance and reconciliation. Now, let me just say this as we get into this text. Half of my sermon is going to offend half of you. <laughs> Depending on which of these virtues you find yourself most drawn to, how many find themselves deeply committed to holding people accountable? Let me see your hands, right? All of this forgiveness stuff I'm going to talk about in the next 20 minutes, it's going to highly offend you. Just prepare yourself. Now, how many find themselves more drawn to mercy and forgiveness and showing grace to people and seeing people restored? Well, all of this accountability stuff that I'm going to talk about, you're going to find some of that offensive. So just get ready to be offended. He lays out for them three steps that I believe uh, really encapsulates how you do this how you hold both accountability and repentance uh, and um, reconciliation, how you hold them together. And it says in verse number 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. I want you to see two virtues that come out of this, or, or two major concepts maybe is a better way of putting it, and it can be summed up in two words, sin and win, sin and win. Now, I'm a sports fan. I love sports, and part of the reason why I love sports is because it's very clear what the goal is. The goal is to win the game. The goal is to win the game. Now, in sports, a win is so clearly defined. Typically, in most sports, it is whoever ends with the most points or the most sets uh, or the fewest strokes uh, is, is the winner there. And you have to define a win in every area of life. I don't think desiring to win is wrong. I think the reason why so many people are drawn to sports is because we're wired that way. But we get in trouble if we misdefine a win. So I want to correctly define what a win is. Notice how Scripture defines the win in all of this is to gain your brother. 
Notice that Jesus is about to tell his followers how to deal with sin when an offense happens against you. But he doesn't want them to lose sight of the win. And neither should you and I. We must deal with sin, but we have to rightly define the win. And the win is gaining our brother at the end of it all, what our hope should be as much as it is possible with us. And as we will see as we work our way through this, sometimes it is beyond our ability to reconcile. But as much as it is possible with us, we should strive for reconciliation. Now, friends, let me just tell you this. One of the things that I try to do throughout my week as I prepare to teach you is to allow the passage that I'm going to be teaching for that week to be my own personal devotional, to minister to my own soul. Far be it from me to stand before you to preach something at you that has not first been dealt with in my own heart and in my own soul. And I will tell you that what is really, really hard is the desire to win someone who has sinned against you. It is much easier for us to walk away. It is much easier for us to, <clears throat> using a, a, a common vernacular, to cancel them, to say, I am done with you. I wash my hands of you. But I realize that if this verse of Scripture is going to have any substantial power to it, if it's going to have any life to it, it has to be lived out. And what I realize is that it has to be lived out in our relationships personally. So here's my first challenge to you, as I challenge myself throughout the week, is who does this apply to in your life? Who does this apply to in our church because if, if we're going to be the community that Christ called us to be, we have to have more than just knowledge or information. We have to have transformation and, yes, even application. Notice the first uh, three words, if you're a brother. This is a family verse. Again, the whole chapter is a family chapter. This is speaking not of how our dealings must be with those outside of the faith. There are other passages for that. But this is speaking specifically to how our dealings must be with those who are within the faith. And notice what he says is that even within the faith, sin is going to happen. You and I should anticipate being offended that... that um, we're going to be hurt because whether you have a, a, wherever you have a gathering of human beings, you have a gathering of imperfect people and hurts do happen. Earlier this week, through my radio program, I hosted a webinar for professional counselors and pastors, and the webinar was on um, spiritual abuse, religious trauma, and church hurt. And the motivation for the webinar was a study that I came across captured in a book called The Great De-Churching, The Great De-Churching, that communicates that 37% of those who are uh, no longer going to church are no longer going because they've been hurt by the church. Um, the fact of the matter is, is church hurt does happen. But let's not mistake the reality that not only will just about 100% of us be hurt by the church or by some Christian or some Christian leader, 
because we too are fallen, 100% of us will cause hurt as well. Can I get an amen for that? Not a lot of amens for that one. So if we're going to take this seriously, we have to see ourselves on both sides of it. Now notice the first step in healing this whole thing of getting the win, if you will. The first step is for the person who's been offended to go to the offender. That's counterintuitive, but this is the way of Christ. What is counterintuitive is to place the responsibility on the wounded individual. But Jesus does that. And he does it without qualms at all. He does it without apologies at all because that's what God does. God is the initiator of our reconciliation, but notice that God in all sin is the primary offended party, but he initiates reconciliation. And so if we are going to be a follower of Christ... We who have been the offended are to go to the offender. Now, there's multiple reasons for this, not the least of which is that the vast majority of things that happen to you and me that hurt us from other people, they may not even know they've done. How many have ever hurt somebody and didn't even know you hurt them? I mean, you're, you're engulfed in deep thought and you walk by a person and they spend a week upset that you didn't say hello. And you're thinking to yourself, I didn't even know you were there. Well, let me just say, when you're 6'6", the problem's even worse because if you look straight ahead, you miss a whole lot of people. So if I didn't say hello, please forgive me. But this is the reality is that um, I think Christ is wanting the one-on-one interaction for multiple reasons, one of which is to be able to make sure that the person who's done the offending knows they did the offending. So he says that I must go to my brother or my sister directly in order to get this handled. The second thing that it does is it forces us to keep short accounts, to keep short accounts, to not let offenses mount up. Now, I know, I mean, how many, again, by the show of hands, are conflict avoided? Like, you you don't even want to deal with the conflict. Well, I'm sorry to say this is not uh, something you can just white out your Bible. God did not give, newsflash, us editorial um, authority over Scripture. We got to take all of it or none of it. And so if you're taking all of Scripture, this means that you got to keep short accounts. Now, that does not mean that you have to go to a person every time your feathers are ruffled. Notice what's at issue here. If your brother sins against you, Now, to be in sin is to be in violation of Scripture, not of your style, not of your preference, because throughout life, there are going to be times when we're offended, but nobody has sinned. We just have different stylistic desires. Let's just take how many churches have divided over music. How many have their musical preference? All of you do, right? Might just be why you're here this morning, this early. Right? Because you have a preference on a style of music. No sin in that. But for somebody to have a different preference 
in the style of music. As long as all of it is glorifying God, no sin in that either. But how many churches have split up the middle, divided because of different styles or preferences about music? He is not talking about stylistic disagreements. He is talking about violation of Scripture. So one of the first things you want to ask yourself before you go to confront your brother or your sister over their sin is, have they violated the Word of God? Have they violated Scripture? Have they violated the commands of the gospel? And if so, then yes, you have to confront them over it. And the hope is that humble confrontation will lead them to repentance and that you will um, gain your brother. But the reality is, is that um, sometimes this doesn't happen. So what do we do if going to them one-on-one does not work? Well, we go to verse number 16. But if he does not listen, if he's heard you but not uh, repentant. Um, this is an obstinate heart. This is a person who's been confronted with the truth of their sins, but unwilling to do what it takes to make it right. This isn't the person who says, you know what? I was, um, I was wrong. Oh, by the way, the other thing that going to them one-on-one does is it limits gossip Notice that if the brother sins against you, the sister sins against you, your first step is not to come to a third party. Your first step in this whole thing is not to spread throughout the body of Christ. Can you believe him or her? Can you believe how offensive they are? Can you believe what they've done to me and you haven't yet gone to them? I'm going to tell you, I'm going to be honest with you. The verdict on the church as a whole, not just what's I'm talking about the body of Christ as a whole, is we tend to not do this well. I, I think we inherit our conflict resolution style from the culture that we're in more than the Word of God. But the Word of God should inform everything, and most importantly, our relationships to God and to others. And our conflict resolution style should be to limit gossip, because what is the goal? The goal is that we might win our brothers and sisters and see sin forgiven and reconciled. How many thank God that God has not chosen to expose the vast majority of your sins? How many praise God for that? That the vast majority of your sins he deals with between you and him. He convicts you of it, maybe through the word, maybe through prayer. You see your fallenness, you repent, and nobody else is the wiser of the mistakes you've made in attitude, in word, or in deed. And then sometimes God decides to involve other people, but only as an act of love so that you might ultimately be restored Yeah, he wants us, you and me, to model that. And let me just tell you, this is far easier to preach than to live. But preaching is my calling, so let me go forward. He goes on to say, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established 
by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, this is where it almost sounds like a legal proceeding because in many ways this is borrowed from uh, Israeli law, Hebrew law, ancient Israelite law. There are many passages in the Old Testament that affirm this type of interaction. But here we are now escalating the situation. But even in the escalation of the situation, I'm only bringing one or two more with me. And why am I bringing one or two more with me? Well, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great uh, theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, published what could arguably be his most famous book in 1939 called Life Together. And in that book, he lays out three reasons why taking one or two witnesses with you might be uh, the best course of action. Number one, to protect against false accusation to protect against false accusation. So what the scripture knows is that sometimes you and I misperceive sin and we can falsely accuse someone. So by the brother or sister being added in, they can evaluate. Now this presupposes that the person is nonpartisan, that they're neutral, that they're not coming just to be my friend or the other person's friend, but they're ultimately committed to the goal of reconciling whatever has been wrong. Don't invite a person into the situation if that's not their goal. If their goal is not to see God honored through the win, if you will, then they should not be involved. But number one, it protects against false accusation. Number two, it helps a brother who did legitimately sin to see his sin, to see his sin. Sometimes you coming to me, maybe I couldn't hear you clearly, but having somebody else come and explain it differently, maybe you can hear them clearly. How many have in the past or are currently raising a teenager? Anybody know what I'm talking about? How many have ever experienced the enormous frustration of your teenager coming back to you and saying something that they heard someone else say that you've been saying for years, but all of a sudden now it is the most enlightening thing they have ever heard in all of, all of creation? Anybody ever experienced that before? And you're thinking, I've been telling you that forever, but at least you got it. Praise God. But sometimes we can't hear one person, but we can't hear the other. So bringing a witness helps with that. Then thirdly, to be a public witness in case the matter has to go before the entire church. Sometimes the matter has to go before an entire church. And when it does have to go before an entire church, there needs to be a public witness to say, yeah, we did talk about this. This wasn't just one-on-one. His word against her word, her word against his word but that we have tried to deal with this. And this brother hopefully will repent, but maybe he won't. So the first step is to pursue or go to, to win personally. The second is go to win communally. But then the third we're going to see here is go to win congregationally. Look at verse number 17. If he refuses, assuming that he refused step one and two, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Tell it to the church, that's step three, that, that this is now the entire community of believers being told. Now, this makes many of you feel terribly uncomfortable. And this is not step one of the process. But there is a biblical requirement at times because of the nature, severity of sin, because of a person's 
unwillingness to repent of, uh, of immorality, that it has to come before the entire church. I've had to be a part of that several times. It is never easy. It is often through tears, either in front of the church or at least leading up to that moment and probably marked by tears afterward. Because if you take verse 15 seriously, this is your brother, this is your sister, and you love them deeply, but yet they won't repent. And your concern is for their soul, that if they continue down this path, they'll suffer great harm, maybe to themselves, maybe even to their families, maybe their life, maybe their eternal destiny. And so bring it before the church, you must. And when that happens, the church typically is terribly uncomfortable about that because where do we find uh, any place, any group, any gathering analogous to this type of gathering? You see, this is what makes the church so unique. One of the most unique things about the church is everywhere else you might find accountability but no redemption, or you might find redemption and reconciliation but no accountability. Only within the church do you find both. Spiritual family. So yes, sometimes because of the severity and desire to win a brother's or sister's soul, you bring it before the entire church so that they will feel the weight of it. Maybe the sting of that will lead them to repentance. But then if they won't listen, then it goes even further. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile, a tax collector. This means no more communion, no more fellowship. Do you know that one of the greatest blessings that you and I get when we come to faith in Christ is community with one another and with Christ? Community in Christ is a great blessing. How many would agree with that? That community in Christ is a great blessing to your soul and mine? I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for the love of the church in many ways, the love of the church, the love of this community and the church that I grew up in, I, I think about it as, as, as as close to and sometimes even closer than physical family. And the threat of losing community with them, you know, we do this act every month called communion, which reminds us because of Christ, we have union with with Christ, communion with the Father, but also community with one another. The great reformer John Calvin um, in Geneva, Switzerland, where he lived, instructed the church, and subsequently many of us who have followed the teaching afterwards, that if a brother or sister is unrepentant about their, their sins, they should not be able to participate in communion to be cut off from communion, that you could not partake of the table was severe. And this is what Paul, I mean, uh, Jesus is getting at. He says, treat them like a Gentile, treat them like a tax collector. Now, communion was not instated at this point. It would be instated later. But when it was instated later, it was seen as a gift, a grace to the church. And to be cut off from community and communion Man, what a severity. It was a foretaste of being cut off from God if we remain obstinate and unrepentant. And then he goes on to say, truly I say to you, 
Whatever you bind on earth shall be, bound, shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. These verses have been terribly misunderstood. This isn't primarily um, referring to small gatherings of prayer where only two or three people show up because everybody else was busy and us declaring, well, don't worry, God is in the midst. Nor is these verses primarily referring to prayer. The binding and the loosing is referring to the authority of the church concerning community and fellowship. That if you bind or prevent someone from coming to fellowship, I will be present to enforce that. If you loose someone or allow them to be restored back into fellowship, Christ and his authority is with us. The two or three are, again, referencing back up uh, to verse number 16, the two or three that are there that witnessed to the brother or sister that tried to win them, albeit without their repentance. And he says that the goal, the win, and all of it, is to gain your brother. And so where do you find yourself on this? We could no doubt discuss this in a life group setting or discuss this among ourselves more. But all of us find ourselves somewhere in this spectrum, either the offender or the offended. But wherever you find yourself, I pray that you would know that all of this has been modeled by Christ on the cross and all of it is possible because of the work of the Spirit in our lives, granted to us by faith in Him, that ultimately what God wants is our relationship with Him. I want you to just notice one last thing as we all stand. I want you to notice the great patience to which God pursues us. God pursues you and me with great patience. Why all these steps? Why step one, two, three, and even four? It's because he doesn't turn his back on us quickly. He doesn't give up on us quickly, nor should we give up on others quickly. Today, if you are far from God, please take this sermon as a call to repentance. And I pray that you will repent, that you will respond. There'll be friends to pray with you up front and even in the lobby. But I pray that if you are a believer in Christ, that you would go forth, live this way, and ask God, Lord, what is the application for this in my life? Let's pray.